Happiness is a choice. It can spread, and it can be your greatest advantage. These are the arguments that speaker and author Sean Acor make in his book, Before Happiness. Hi, I'm Ashton Gustafson, and welcome to Good, True, and Beautiful. But before we get started, a message from this episode's featured nonprofit. Gravity, a center for contemplative activism, is for people who care about their spirituality and want to make the world a better place. We're located in Omaha, Nebraska, in the heartland of America, but we work with people all over the country and around the world. We offer contemplative retreats, spiritual direction, and Enneagram consultations and workshops. Learn more about what we're doing at gravitycenter.com. Hey friends, Ashton here. Welcome back to another episode of Good, True, and Beautiful. Today we are joined by the author of Before Happiness. I've recently just finished this book. It's been out for a couple years, um, but it crossed my path, and I thought, man, this is some beautiful insight that our friends at Good, True, and Beautiful would love to hear about. And so with that being said, I reached out to Sean, and he said he would come on, and so he is joining us here today. Sean, welcome to the conversation. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely, man. So I gave you a little uh, uh, clunky bio there, but maybe for some of our listeners that haven't crossed paths with you and your work in the world, where do you begin? Um, I began uh, where you are. I, I began in Waco, Texas. Uh, my <laughs> father was a neuroscientist there, um, uh, studying at Baylor and as a professor. And um, I got the incredible fortune and, and privilege to get to attend Harvard um, for undergrad and went there and, and loved my time there. But as I was there, um, once I graduated and was in a graduate program, despite you know some successes and being in such an incredible place, I went through some uh, a period of two years of depression. Mm-hmm. And during that time, uh, some people in the psychology department told me that the things I was studying at Harvard Divinity School, um, which I was studying Christian ethics and comparing it to Buddhist ethics, uh, looking at what causes us to wake up in the morning, what makes us, you know, feel passion in our lives, what makes us want to give. They said we could, we could actually quantify if somebody's becoming more altruistic or if somebody's becoming happier or more compassionate. And I was like, no, no, you can't. Those are, uh, those are very uh, soft things, right? Happiness is a mystery. We can measure things like depression and anxiety, but we can't measure something like happiness. And I was wrong. And they're this, you know opposite sides of the same spectrum. And so once we realized we could study it, I've devoted the rest of my life to being able to figure out what it is that causes people to be able to change from their genes and environment to create greater levels of happiness and success. And how do they how do they ripple that out to people that they care about, people in their lives, their family members as well? And how do we use that to overcome challenges in our life like depression or anxiety? Wow. Wow. So did this um, did this aha, this venture into the study of happiness, did it begin in the midst of depression? I mean, was that kind of your, was that your doorway into finding this or was it just kind of a a stream off of what you'd been already learning? I think it was both. Um, I was really fascinated about what motivates people um, and what causes us to find meaning in our lives. So that's why I went to the divinity school. Mm -hmm. I wanted to spend time really focusing on that. I was planning on becoming a pastor and um, not only going through depression taught me so much compassion for people that are going through these dark periods. I mean, up to that point, I thought, you know, uh, you could just think yourself out of depression, Hmm. you know, just, just, you know, do a couple of things, think your way out of it. And then there's no problem. 
um, I learned a lot of things going through depression. I hope, hope we get to talk about some of those things. But I think having gone through it myself and seeing that that was not the end of the story gave me so much hope that this research might be valuable. And so I didn't want it to just be, hey, here's one person's account of how you can overcome, because my story is not like you know, a lot of the world. And I wanted to see, could you measure something and see if it could actually have an effect for anyone, wherever they lived, um, whether they were in a shanty town in, in Soweto, South Africa, or, or a very wealthy banker or celebrity. And so I think it was a mixture. I was already fascinated by it, but but getting to experience this and then getting to see all this research, I mean, what motivates me is that I realized there was all this fantastic research about how to transform your life. And yet I had heard none of it until I, I got into that field. So mm. that's what I do now is I go out into schools and go out into companies and try to share that research so that people can um, to can find greater levels of happiness in their own lives. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. Beautiful. I don't want to get too far ahead of the conversation. Um, but one thing that I think is very, very clear, and I, and I kind of wanted to chat this over with you, is... Um, even though your work is grounded and centered on this idea of happiness, I, I, I really think the thing underneath the thing, the root of what we're getting at, the peeling the onion back, is joy. Um, and we, we read the great spiritual teachers of the world, and very rarely is Thomas Merton, John of the Cross, Paul Tillich, are they talking about happiness? <laughs> but very often they're getting at this idea of joy. How do you kind of hold the difference between the two? Are they similar? Are they on parallel trajectories? Where do you begin in this dialogue between happiness and joy? I think it's uh, such an important question because I think the pursuit of happiness we currently have in the world is flawed. And I think that's part of the reason we're seeing depression rates literally double over the past decade. Anxiety rates are the highest rate they've been in our schools. Hospitalizations for suicide for every single age group, including eight-year-olds, have doubled in the past decade. So I think that there's clearly something we're doing wrong in our pursuit of happiness. I think part of that, um, I think part of it, we're pursuing it on our own, which is a whole separate conversation. But I think it's your definition that you're talking about there that's so important. If you pursue happiness as pleasure, um, pleasure is so fleeting that uh, it doesn't work for very long. So then we need more of it or we chase it faster and it doesn't have the same return. So eventually we start becoming jaded with the world thinking that happiness is not possible, especially in dark or difficult times. Um, if you look through the spiritual masters and the great teachers, almost all of them were living through very difficult periods of life. Uh, they were coming out of slavery. I mean, none of the disciples you know, had a very, you know, uh, uh, easy life. <laughs> Jesus did not. None of the prophets uh, survived, right? Like you, you've got very challenging uh, situations. But I do think happiness has a very important uh, role there. So the very first thing I do is I, I don't define happiness as pleasure. I define happiness as the joy you feel moving towards your potential. And I use mm -hmm. that definition because joy is something you can experience even when life is not pleasurable. At a, at a small level, you can go on a run and your legs might be burning, but you can still feel joy as you see what your body's capable of. You work eight to nine months building a business or you know, um, you know, working with a school, you're going to have overflowing inboxes or high levels of stress. But in the midst of that, you could also experience joy as you watch your strengths emerge. Like even in the midst of childbirth, not high levels of pleasure the whole time, but moments of joy that can correspond with some of the highest levels of fear and pain we can experience. But the other side of it is, I think we're afraid of happiness as a society at certain levels. Because I think we think if I'm too happy, 
I'm not going to push so hard and I won't be so successful. I'll become complacent. Or if we're too happy, maybe we won't fix some of the problems we need to fix with in this world, like discrimination or inequality. Um, that's what pleasure does. Joy does complete opposite when you study it. Joy turns on the brain to its highest problem-solving ability level. So it triples your creativity, dramatically improves your intelligence and memory, improves your product productive energy by 31%. Um, it Literally, every business and educational outcome we know how to test for rises when the human brain is positive and, and in many of our health outcomes as well. So if we have big problems we're dealing with, we need to bring the best brain possible to deal with those situations. So when I look at you know, the spiritual uh, teachers. And when I look at great leaders in our history, like if you look at the civil rights movement, um, the movement there wasn't happening because people were blind to the problems or they're irrationally optimistic. They believed that eventually their behavior would matter if they would link to the right people. Yeah. And so, uh, which I, I think links to one other quick thing, which is I think the opposite of happiness isn't unhappiness. Unhappiness fuels great change. It changed us during the civil rights movement. Unhappiness tells us when we're doing something immoral or we're in the wrong job or in the wrong relationship. Um, unhappiness it can be fantastic fuel. The opposite of what we're fighting against with this happiness research is apathy. And apathy, apathy is the loss of joy moving towards your potential. It's where we stagnate in our lives and stop helping one another. And that's what we're pushing for so, so hard against. Wow. Uh, that was a meal in itself. You were spitting stuff out so fast. <laughs> so you said... Um, uh, joy triples our creativity. Did I hear you say that right? That's right. Yes. Joy, joy triples our creativity. And, and your argument is happiness is the joy we feel striving for our potential. That's it. Yes. Wow. wow. That's unbelievable. What a, what a beautiful definition. I love that. Um, so then uh, one of the other things you chat about is sustaining this happiness and that that can only happen through meaning. Hold my hand on this idea of sustaining happiness, but that doesn't happen without meaning. I, I think, I mean, you're asking really the deeper sides of these questions, <laughs> which is which is fantastic, you know, because my first book that I wrote was on the happiness advantage, which was simply when the brain is positive, you get all those benefits, right? right? Your right. sales rise, like all those different uh, aspects of our lives. Um, before happiness was really focused upon these deeper elements of what allows us to even turn towards happiness in the mm -hmm. first place. And I think a lot of people want happiness to be something easy, or you could take a pill for, or that you could just have something happen to you like you win the lottery, and then you get to be happy. Um, the problem is that if, you, if it's not paired with meaning, we can't actually sustain those levels of happiness very long. Uh, when you study it, what we're finding is that you can feel pleasure, but it, it, goes away very quickly. So you buy a new house, you're so excited about your house, the average uh, amount of time that you can, you know, that people go right back to their happiness levels after buying a house is six months after that. So they do feel pleasure, but it goes right back down to now they're thinking about mowing the lawn, or now they're thinking about their commute and all those different things. Um, I, I had an incredible opportunity that that showed me something that was so important about meaning and happiness that showed the importance of both of them. So, um, several years ago, uh, uh, under the previous, uh, 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 administration, I was, I got the opportunity to work with some of the white house leaders, not with the president, but with some of the executive branch. And I was so excited. I practiced my talk over and over again and came in to give it. And about 10 minutes into this talk, uh, about how happiness is important. This woman raised her hand and she said, I'm sorry, I have to stop you here. I think you're entertaining and funny, but 
uh, I can't use any of this at work. It'd be wildly inappropriate for me to be choosing happiness work because I work in the Human Atrocities Commission. Mm -hmm. And my job is to look for all the tragedies, especially that are occurring for women across the globe. So I can't be coming in and, you know, singing Kumbaya and, you know, talking about happiness and smiling at everyone. But then she kept talking and she said that she's, uh, two of the people on her team attempted suicide, um, that she can't keep good people working on her team because they burn out so fast. Wow. And then when she goes home at the end of the day to sit around a swimming pool with her daughter, she feels guilty for feeling happy with her daughter, knowing what women are experiencing in the world. And she said she was burning out. I mean, what's happening in that moment is this woman is doing something so powerful for the world, something so meaningful, being able to catalog and hopefully to eventually stop these atrocities. But by losing the fuel of joy or happiness along the way, it's very difficult to sustain that meaningful life. If people want to, you know, become doctors to, you know, provide help to other people or missionaries to go spread a message to the world, if they don't find joy doing that at some level, if they don't find joy in their work, they stop those pursuits very quickly. Teachers burn out, wow. even though their job is so meaningful. The other side of it is that if you don't have meaning, then you can't actually ex experience the joy for very long because it becomes so fleeting. So what we need is we need both there together. What I hope for that woman and for her team is as they're doing something so meaningful in the world, looking for those atrocities to stop, that they would find successes they would having. They would bond together as a team. They would be grateful for the joy and experiences they had and hope for it for more people instead of feeling that happiness anxiety, which is I shouldn't feel happiness because it could stop at any moment, or I feel guilty for feeling happiness, both of which put the brakes on the fuel that help us make a better world. So let's get into the really the nitty gritty of before happiness, the five hidden keys to achieving success, spreading happiness and sustaining positive change. Um, and if it's OK with you, I just kind of want to waltz through these five points and, and kind of bounce off some of these ideas. Um, sure. The first one being uh, to choose the most valuable reality. Um, and, and, and really, I think the idea that you're getting here is that um, we are we tend to be just one track focused. We can only see from our vantage point, but really the more you can get outside of yourself, you can go, oh my gosh, there's all sorts of possibilities here. Talk to me about realizing multiple realities uh, and how they can exist in our lives, in our moments, in our businesses and so forth. If you talk to somebody at work or at home and they're an optimist or a pessimist, you know, if somebody's a pessimist and you're trying to describe things that are going on good in their world, they're saying, but in reality, I'm stressed right now. I feel mm. negative right now. I have debts right now. That is the reality. Um, and that is that is their reality. But there is also a reality that they are married or that they're loved or that they have an amazing education or that they have skill sets, part of which was not making it into the reality that they had in that moment. What we're finding is in every moment, there are multiple realities um, that you can tell your tell yourself. Because your brain is finite, you can't actually tell the entire reality every single moment. So what we're looking for is what is the ad most adaptive reality to pick in that moment? What is going to fuel you to move forward? Is it looking at your debts right now and your failures in your life and all the relationships that haven't worked out and all the guilt? Or are you looking at, here are the times I gave and it really mattered? Or here's the skills that I have to give to somebody else right now? Or here's why I'm so grateful that even though I'm delayed on this flight, I'm going home to see my family, right? In those moments, you have uh, your brain has an option. And it turns out whichever path you pick, your brain either works better 
or uh, in an adaptive way or maladaptively, it works worse. So we're looking for what fuels you, what is that energy and focusing your brain back towards that. I found this when I was on a subway um, or, or example of this, uh, this per person pushed by me really hard and kind of like knocked me off of this little um, rail that I was holding onto. And my first thought was, who is this person? Like, mm -hmm. this is my space. I can't believe he ran into me. I can't believe this has happened. But I knew nothing about that guy and he got off immediately. And my thought was, I can sit here and stew for the rest of the subway ride about how frustrated I am with him and about how bad the world has become and whatever I want to go down on that rabbit hole. Or that person might have just found out his mother has cancer or just uh, had a terrible breakup or just learned that his, his daughter is sick. In that moment, I suddenly am willing to give him so much more compassion. And I'm like, I'm fine that he ran into me. So in that moment, I can actually choose a path that causes me more despair and more frustration or one that makes me feel compassionate. And in that moment, I could choose the latter because both were possible realities. Mm. There really is a holy pause that must happen in order to even consider that there are other realities. I think we get so, you know, just laser focused in our own worlds that if we do not have habits and routines and disciplines and rituals around some sort of pause, uh, we really do enter that downward spiral uh, of thinking that multiple realities don't exist. That's right. We get stuck. We think that this is the only possible way to see the world. When I was depressed, that's how it felt like. Mm -hmm. I didn't remember ever feeling happy. And I think I, I didn't think I'd ever feel happy again. I had, I was missing out on all the social support I had around me or my family or my friends or successes. All I saw was that darkness. So in each one of those moments, we, we can look for more opportunities to be grateful or we can stick with the blindness that's causing us to feel frustrated. Yeah, yeah. Talk about rethinking stress. Uh, and I think you mentioned anchor points and how, how you, you need to kind of re-anchor into certain things. Talk about this idea of, as we're um, kind of getting through realizing that multiple realities exist. So this is cool. This is about stress as well in terms of multiple realities. We found, I did a large study at a big bank in the middle of the banking crisis. And we came in to look to see how they were dealing with the stress. And what they were doing was they were telling all the people that work there, that stress is bad for them. Stress is catabolic. It tears down every organ in the body. It's related to 80 to 90% of doctor visits. So whatever you do at work, don't stress. Um, and you even hear that research and, you're, and it makes you feel more stressed because we're creating a fight or flight response to the fight or flight response we were given as humans. So the problem is there's great research showing how stress could be bad for you. There's also amazing research showing how stress actually turns on your body to its highest possible levels. I mean, if you think about it, you're a zebra getting scratched by a lion, that's when you want your immune system working the best. <laughs> so it's designed to work there. You know, I work with so many companies that are worried about stress because they think they'll lose their top people. Then I work with the military and they onboard you with not a beach vacation, they onboard you with boot camp because they know yeah. If you go through stress with the right lens and with other people, you create meaningful narratives, you talk about the rest of your life. So we went in and half of the managers, we told them stress is bad for you. Here's some ways about how to fight as much stress as you can in your life. And with the other half of the managers, we told them stress is actually enhancing in your life. Embedded within every stress is meaning. If I tell you that someone's failing English right now, you don't feel any stress. If I tell you your kid is failing English, you feel stressed because there's meaning involved with that relationship. Your inbox is overflowing with spam, no stress. Your inbox is overflowing with people that are depending upon you, you feel stressed. So what we got people to do is simply acknowledge the stress, see the stress, um, then see why that stress was meaningful, and then reconnect that emotional response back to that meaning. 
making sure that the energy that they're feeling in the midst of that stress is going towards that meaningful result. I'm doing this because I care so much about my kid. I want to give back to these people and do this email because these people really matter to me, which fuels you instead of making you hate and that that soul training in, in, in email inbox. So uh, the reason that's so we then tested people and it turns out six weeks later, there was no impact upon their stress. The stress levels didn't move at all. I thought they might. We went in there with the president of Yale and one of the my former students uh, from Stanford. And it turns out that uh, Ali Akram and it turns out what we found was stress didn't change but its effects upon the body did. We saw a 23% drop in all of the negative effects of stress for the group that was looking at the meaning involved with their stress. So what that means is stress is inevitable, but its effects upon us are not. And it's changed based upon our mindset. Do we see meaning in our lives and our stress, or are we missing it every time? And it makes so much sense. I mean, how many things in our lives that we would say we're proud of or we so enjoy today or is one of the most significant things that we have almost every one of those things, we don't look back and go, yeah, and it was a walk in the park. We all go, yeah, it was bumpy. There was some stress. There was headwinds. Um, but just keeping that idea of connecting meaning to it. Um, wow. And we do hear so much data around how bad stress is for us um, and that everyone's sick because they're stressed. But just that little sliver of a change, I think, will be huge for some of our listeners. Um so the next one, mapping your meaning markers. So, uh, and I loved this phrase that you had of diversify, a diversified portfolio of meaning. What do you mean by taking a map of your meaning markers? So what, what we initially had Harvard students do is we had them map what Cambridge, Massachusetts looked like for them. And what we found is whatever they drew on their map was actually the most meaningful parts of the city for them. So for some of them, the library was front and center, right in the middle of the map and a huge. And for other students who were less studious, uh, the library didn't even make it on their map. <laughs> they had some of the local bars and right. So uh, you could actually map and see how much meaning and where meaning was being derived in people's lives. Um, you hear, and I think this comes back to what you were just saying, you hear so many people being like, I'm so stressed, I'm so stressed, I'm so stressed. Um, you don't hear people saying, I'm, I, I feel so much meaning today, I feel so much meaning today, right? <laughs> But that stress is related to meaning. We've just forgotten it within yeah. those moments. So we get people to kind of look to see where the meaning was coming for, from in their lives. What I found a lot from a lot of uh, the people I was working with was a lot of workaholism, which is they would start working and they'd have a success. So they get rewarded. So they'd be like, that was fun and meaningful. So I'm going to do more work. And then they do more work there and they get more meaning out of it. But the problem is then they start only finding meaning there and they forget they found so much meaning in uh, yeah. spending quiet time out in nature or spending time with their family or having quiet time in the morning to read or to pray or, or to, uh, to connect with one another. And so what happened was their meaning got stuck in one place. If you have a non-diversified financial portfolio, if you're all in one stock, you're in a very fragile situation yeah. because yeah. at any moment that could go away. Same thing is true with meaning. If it's just work for you, then, then we are in a fragile state in terms of our levels of happiness. So we get people to diversify it, look for those other sources of meaning, and then find ways of investing more time in those things that have such a high rate of return for us, like our families, our, the things we're reading, what we're listening to that fuels us, spending time out in nature, whatever it is for that person that finds a meaning, trying to find a way of diversify that meaning in their life. And you probably get a little a little sense of detachment too, like that you don't overly attach 
to the whatever one avenue of meaning, you know, like our jobs. I think our jobs are our easiest thing to get over attached to. When you cultivate um, these this diversified portfolio of meaning, you, you probably hold everything just a little bit looser and probably enjoy them all just a little bit more. Would you say that's right? I think that's totally true because yeah. otherwise we panic, right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That's what happens in market. I, I mean, I love what you're saying there, um, that we don't have to – we don't have to be as afraid because we know if if for a couple of days or a couple of months, our job is just not good, but we have all these other good things in our life, we can get sustained through those down periods yeah. instead of tumbling even further. Bingo. Yeah. So the next one, finding the X spot, and you call this painting the target. What do you mean by that? So this was fun. It started with something that I was surprised about that I didn't know. I'm not a runner, um, but I learned that the greatest number of heart attacks that occur in the Boston Marathon actually don't occur at the beginning when people were running and shouldn't have been running in the first place. Um, it actually happens right before the finish line, the last two tenths of a wow. mile, the last tenth of a mile. It's when they see the finish line, their body drops so many uh, neurochemical accelerants into their body. That's when in a fatigue state, your body can't handle it. So mm. we don't want people having heart attacks, but we're, what we're noticing about the brain is that you have these resources those accelerants in your life that we're not using. So the question is, how do we get more of those? So only two things get the brain to feel, uh, to, to speed towards a goal. That's either perceiving progress, like feeling like you've already done so much, maybe we could just get to the end of the finish line, or feeling like the, the finish line is close. That's the proximity. So it's either pro progress or proximity that fuel mm -hmm. our, our goals. Uh, the problem is oftentimes a lot of the goals we set are so nebulous, you have no idea if you're even close to your, your goal. Like, I want to be more educated. Like, we have no idea yeah. where that's going to end, or I want to be a better person. So what we got people to do is just to simply make a lot more finish lines in their life. So if they're working on writing their dissertation, uh, that's not their goal. We make their goal writing 10 pages because that means within the next you know, two, three weeks, they're going to have a finish line that they're close to that's going to speed them towards that. And we also show them the progress that they've been experiencing in their lives. So for example, with some of the athletes I worked with, um, we got them before they would set New Year's resolutions, we would have them go back through the year and think of three things that they were actually had already been successful at. Mm -hmm. So it's showing progress that they've already been making towards their potential in the past. So before they start at 0% at the beginning of the year on these new tasks, instead of starting at zero, they're starting with this whole storehouse of progress that's just continuing on after January 1st goes. And that's what the brain needs. It either needs close to the finish line or feel like progress has been made. Wow. Well, yeah, you know, that kind of triggers, um, I don't know if you've crossed paths with Jay Papazan, who wrote The One Thing with Gary Keller, um, and and he talks about, like, goal setting and things like that, always asking the question of, what's the one thing I can do such that by doing it, everything else will be easier or unnecessary? And he, and he says, don't go all the way to the finish line of what you're trying to do, just what's that next thing in front of you? Um, and I didn't, I, I haven't connected that to joy and to happiness, and so to hear you say that that's um, taking a bite-sized approach to your big, long goals and things like that is is uh, just another step in the direction of joy and happiness. I love that. I think it came back to that, uh, the Human Atrocities Commission I was talking about. Mm -hmm. If your goal is, I have to eliminate all the negative in the world right, before right, I can right. find happiness, yeah. it's never going to work. Yeah. So we need to find those small moments of joy for, for ourselves and also for our kids, yeah. you know, as they're trying to find happiness as well. No doubt.
Um, number four, canceling the noise. And this is my favorite one. Uh, this podcast used to be called Let the Music Play. So any, anytime there's like an idea of, of music, I'm, I'm all in. Um, so talk to me about the difference between the signal and the noise, because I think that, um, that was a, that was a brilliant part of this book that really spoke to me, uh, and makes a lot of sense of just how much, how much noise is out there that we got to filter through every day to really anchor into, uh, the signal that we're trying to, uh, uh, connect to. I think that's one of my favorite parts of the book as well. Um, it's something I've used the most in my life practically, um, because our brain is overloaded with noise all the time. Yeah. Noise is just, we just define as something that doesn't move you forward or gets in the way of you finding your goals. And I feel like we're oversaturated with noise. Um, the problem is when the brain is flooded with information, good or bad, if it's flooded, it thinks it's under threat. So the very first thing it does is it only processes threats. So if you have a lot of noise coming in, your brain is only processing the negative. So, and that's the problem if we're getting alerts on our phones and our watches yeah, the news. that are mostly negative. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so what we got fascinated by was how do we actually quiet the noise just for a moment so we can get back to the signal? Those are the things that actually move you forward in your life, the things you're actually striving for in your life. So, um, you know, I, I, I have noise canceling headphones I use on planes and they allow me to be more productive. The same thing is true with how the brain processes the world in general. So meditation and prayer, for example, has been one of those things within my life that when I was able to take those quiet moments, it allowed me to gain perspective like you were talking about, those uh, miracle moments to stop and to be able to reflect on. There are actually multiple realities in this mm -hmm. moment. I'm going to choose the one that works better for me. What's happening that from a from the brain perspective is for a little bit, you just stem the noise that was coming in. You're only getting in either signal or you're just quieting it down for a little bit so that your brain can catch up, process, and then start looking for the good in your life, the gratitude, the things that are positive. Um, so there's a lot of ways people can start to create that in their lives. When I get into a car, the very first thing I do is I spend the first two or three minutes uh, with the the radio off. Like I listen to podcasts or audiobooks or music when I'm in the car. Um, I just stop for two minutes when I'm first getting in the car to just quiet my brain. Mm. Um, uh, or I'll mute a couple of the commercials when I'm watching a football game, yeah, just yeah. quieting some of that noise within my life. But also, um, you know, I, I one of the things that's been really helpful for me, I learned after writing the book, is something from... Uh, the, the next book I wrote, um, which was uh, looking at something called these mental moats, which is the weakest time of the day for your brain. The place where your brain is the weakest is the first 30 minutes of the day and the last 30 minutes of the day. But that's oftentimes when I'd read through the news to see about what was going on in the world or what happened in the world that I had missed. Or I would go check in on social media or check my inbox. And either I'd wake up in the morning now panicked with all I had to do or with all the negative that was going on in the world, or my brain before it codes information as I go to sleep is saturated by the negative. So what I simply do is I still listen to news because I want to know what's going on in the world that I can help with, or I still will be on social media or check my inbox, but I don't do it the first 30 minutes or the last 30 minutes of the day, creating a moat around my day, allowing me to defend myself enough to quiet the noise so that I can actually be better able to defend against the negative when it comes in. Because the more we focus on the meaningless or the negative, the harder it is to actually hear uh, the signal that we're wanting to hear. It's a direct trade-off, right? Yeah, because our yeah. brains are finite. You're right. Like the more noise we listen to, the less of the signal we get in. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, gosh, I'm, I need to hit mute more often. Uh, beautiful ritual though, you know, begin in the car two minutes without the sound on. That's, um, 
I'm going to have to do that. Um, and so the last one here, creative, uh, positive inception. And you've got this idea called success franchising, which I thought was just brilliant. Um, hold my hand on this idea of what you're getting at in this fifth point. Well, I didn't want, what I, I'm interested in is not only being able to change our mindset, but be able to plant those seeds of, of change in other people's lives as well. Um, that's what the whole next book uh, was about. It was called Big Potential. And what I realized uh, in writing Before Happiness is that I think we have to start at the individual level to create positive change, but we also need to find ways of being able to get this out to other people. Because yeah. if you stop smoking, your health will improve, but you're not going to be nearly as healthy if everyone around you is still smoking. Hmm. So what Positive Inception was about is how do you actually take an idea that's working and plant that seed of the idea in somebody else's brain? Um, so success franchising was simply looking to see what's working in your life and then doing that over and over again. So you go back through and look at some of the greatest successes you had. You know, maybe it's, you know, learning a musical instrument or maybe having an amazing podcast or, you know, some work that you're doing in, in real estate or in, in your family life figure out what it was that allowed you to be so successful there, what strengths you use there, and then import those over to whatever you're you're dealing with in the present moment. Um, well, what we were finding continually in the research is oftentimes when people want to improve themselves, they go to the weakest part of themselves and try really hard to improve it. And that's actually the hardest, mm -hmm. hardest task to do. What you really want your brain to do is to get uh, get a win. So what we do is we take whatever you're strong at and do a little bit more of that. <laughs> and when you do that, you can start to see how that might apply in different elements of your life. You feel higher levels of self-confidence and it spreads out from there. But then you're also trying to get other people to be able to see this as well. So you can use this in terms of the praise that you use for other people. You know, I, I had a friend who felt like she was constantly nagging her husband because he wasn't doing anything around the house to help out at all. And she kept nagging and nagging for years. And she felt like, their relationship was not doing as well for both sides of it and nothing was happening. No change was occurring. So I invited her for just a week. I was like, what if you just praised him for anything good that he did and just held off on all the complaints for just one week, just for a, 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 a distinct period of time? Um, so she said it was really hard. Like the first day she came home, like there are golf bags everywhere, like dishes in the sink, you know, but he did by ordering some pizza. And she's like, thank you so much for thinking of dinner tonight. That was one thing less I had to do today and I was tired. Thank you for doing that. Um, and then she would thank him for things over the course of the week. And, you know, there were still lots of things he wasn't doing. And she was panicked that maybe he would be like, well, I guess I'm doing enough. I'm getting some praise. <laughs> but there's some great research coming out of Wharton right now where one of my friends, Adam Grant, was finding that if you want to get people to give more, you don't show them all the times people have given to them. So you don't say, hey, think about all those people who have really given to you. Now we want you to donate to something. He says a, a much better approach, and when you test it, you get a higher reward, is you go back and you say, I want you to think of three times you've really helped somebody in your life. So they think about times when they're a helper, and then you ask them to give money. Because it turns out if you're a helper, you help. If you're a giver, Givers give, they give more. So what you're doing is you're activating a new identity for that person. So what you're doing is in some of that success franchising is you're looking to see what are those models that you really want that person to be able to do more of, find it, praise it, and spend a little bit more time on that side of the equation, building up their strengths. And when that happened, this woman that I was describing, she said, I have to tell, I met with her on Monday of the following week. And she said, I have to tell you something crazy for months there's been this leak on our patio with one of our hoses on saturday morning he actually got up and he went to home depot and he bought a new hose and fixed this hose without me even saying a word wow. so 
givers give, helpers help. How do we create those patterns in our lives so we see ourselves yeah. with that uh, most val- that most valuable reality? Yeah. So happiness, what you're saying is not only is it a choice, uh, not only can it can it spread, that eventually it actually becomes your advantage, your life's advantage, your business's advantage. Like this is a uh, th- this is a cosmic approach. It's not just an individual conversation that you're you're having in this book. You're saying, yes, it begins with you, but the ripple effects of the beauty and the meaning and the purpose that leads forth from cultivating a life uh, around happiness and joy, really, this, this, this is how we can make the world a better place. I think that's a that's a beautiful summary of what I was hoping for. And it comes back a little bit to the guy on the subway. I could have responded with negativity to the guy who pushed me, you know, and like, look at him. And now we both don't like each other. And he was already having a bad day, clearly. But in that moment, if I could take that space and think about a different response, I might actually have a a potential of showing compassion to somebody so that when he's going to see his mom or he's going to work or he's going to be surrounded by other people, instead of having primed him to be negative, I'm now priming him to be more positive. And that actually makes me feel better as well, creating this feedback loop where positive change is easier and easier and happiness can ripple out instead of just negativity uh, uh, rippling through the system. It's an inside job. That's right. Um, Right on. Well, hey, Two last questions before we go here. I always ask people this. Do you personally have any daily rituals or disciplines or routines uh, that kind of keep you in this space of cultivating happiness? I do. Um, I actually have several. The, the I every day think, think of or write down three things that I'm grateful for that are new, that have occurred over the past 24 hours. So I'm not repeating. Um, I do those oh, with yeah. my son as we go to sleep at night. It's, right it's it's key actually not to repeat them because it doesn't matter what you're grateful for. It matters that you're scanning. That's the part that matters. Yeah, let's um, go. That's good. That's real good. <laughs> I, re- I, read a, I read a two-minute positive email every day, a very short email, praising or thanking one person. It's actually probably usually one of the best parts of my entire day. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a different person. It's just you know somebody I've worked with or an old high school English teacher or a friend I haven't talked to in a while. Um, very short, very low-lifting. But I love it because you get amazing emails back. You spend all day long thinking about how amazing you were for writing the email. Um, but it raises your social your social connection uh, score. And social connection is the greatest predictor of your long-term levels of happiness. So like, like you're saying, you know, happiness might be an inside job, but it requires others to be able to do it. Our greatest predictor of happiness is other people. So happiness isn't just a self-help idea. We're, we find our highest levels of meaning and joy and purpose when we're making others better as well. Love it, love it. Last question, um, what advice would you give to your younger self? I wish I had known that success wouldn't lead to happiness. I kept thinking if I was more successful, then I'd be happier. And then, so it's okay to suffer now. I I wish I had prioritized happiness in the present and Mm -hmm. not just my happiness, other people's happiness as well, like social connection, optimism, gratitude. Because now what I'm learning in all this research, if your success rates rise for the next five year period of time, your happiness levels flatline, they don't move. Uh, We keep thinking they're going to, but they don't. So I kept waiting to feel happy in the future. And if you look at celebrities and, you know, the wealthy and all the, it it doesn't work out for them, right? It it does. (laughs) Exactly. But flip it around. If we can raise your levels of happiness now, this year, over the next month, turns out 
as I'm researching you, every single success rate for you rises. Everything we test for on the ACT and SAT rises dramatically. Every key performance indicator at work rises significantly, and many of our health outcomes as well. Happiness really is an advantage in our life, but only if we choose it as fuel for our success, yeah. not hoping for that to occur in the future. Brilliant. Brilliant. Love it so much. Um, so you guys, if you have enjoyed this conversation, which I'm sure you have, make sure you guys go online, follow Sean and what he's doing. Sean, best best website to find what you're doing? Um, is happinessadvantage.com. Happinessadvantage.com. And uh, his books, I'm sure you can find them anywhere good books are bought or sold. He's also had a brilliant interview with Oprah that's amazing. Um Sean, on behalf of all of us, thank you for your good and necessary work and um, for uh, giving us a little joy today and kind of filling up our sails so we can uh, take this great insight to the world. You've entrusted it to us, and uh, now we got to go back out there and uh, turn it over to those that we've been entrusted. So thank you so much, man, for your time and energy today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely, my friend. Hey, before you go, don't forget to hit subscribe right there on your phone. That's probably where you're listening. Uh, and if you enjoyed this, would you mind leaving us a review? One of the things that we're wanting to do is get this information out to as many people as we can. And we are finding that uh, when people leave good, true, and beautiful reviews, uh, that helps us get this information out more and more to people all across the world. I do not take it lightly uh, that you invite me to ride shotgun with you in your car, uh, you allow these conversations to be a part of your jogs. You allow these conversations to be a part of the communities and families and businesses that you've been entrusted. Uh, I do not take that lightly at all, and I am thrilled uh, that you have joined us here at this table, at this conversation. There's always a seat left. There's always room for more, uh, and we are just so grateful for you guys joining us here at Good, True, and Beautiful. And as you approach this week, may you pause by the orchid. Listen to the bluebirds sing and be love.